people have a hard time uh, recognizing that, yes, it's one of greatest mankind's uh, feats to have landed on the surface of the moon so many years back. Um, and now the idea that you could build a business there seems so far-fetched. But uh, when you actually look at the numbers and you look at the customers and you look at the market, it's very much there. Welcome to the Space Angels podcast. I'm Chad Anderson, the CEO of Space Angels, which is the leading source of capital for early stage space ventures. Because this is the inaugural episode, I want to take a moment and properly introduce the podcast before getting into the program. This podcast is meant for angel investors, people who are searching for not only financial returns, but also meaning in their investments. I'm excited to bring you this podcast because it gives me an opportunity to bring some of these conversations that I have with CEOs who are doing very big things in space and changing the course of humanity. I get to bring those conversations to you and help you understand the real opportunities and risks in the sector. In each episode, we plan to provide context and information to help you make sense of this dynamic new industry. And we'll hear from some of the leading entrepreneurial space CEOs, thought leaders, and movers and shakers anyone that's making waves in this market. We chose to launch the Space Angels podcast on this, the 12th of September, 2017, because it's the 55th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's speech at Houston's Rice University, where he announced the United States' intention to land a person on the moon within a decade. On that auspicious day, September 12th, 1962, in his speech, the president stated, among other things, that no man can fully grasp how far and fast we have come. If the history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. He goes on to quote that all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties and both must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courage. At Space Angels, it is our strongly held belief that in our generation, the people who carry the mantle of this answerable courage are not only the young men and women who are risking their lives to go into space, but also the entrepreneurs who are putting everything they have on the line to build a future in space for all humanity. Much has changed since the days that the world governments held a monopoly on the space race. Today's space race is being led by entrepreneurs and angel investors as much as it's being led by government space agencies. And the mission of Space Angels Podcast is to bring to light the stories of these entrepreneurs and the private investors who fuel their growth. So this is our inaugural episode. And I want to make a promise to you, our listeners, that in every one of these episodes, we are going to be speaking with a mover and shaker in the industry. Someone who is working on something big, who is shaping the future of humanity, who is helping to take humanity to space. And we're going to ask questions that get to the heart of what you want to know as an angel investor as to what are the real opportunities and risks about these entrepreneurial ventures before putting your money in. Our key thesis at Space Angels is that there has never been a better time to invest in early stage space ventures. And we're gonna use these episodes to get to the heart of what matters. As an investor, what do you look for? What is the market opportunity? What are the real risks? What should I be looking at? These are the type of questions that we're going to be exploring and asking of our guests. And I'm certain that you are going to be enlightened by the answers. Without further ado, our first guest, John Thornton, CEO of Astrobotic. For anyone with their finger on the pulse of the entrepreneurial space race, it should come as no surprise that the moon is becoming prime real estate these days. As interest and investment in commercial space heats up, and as government agencies and commercial companies alike focus their attention beyond low Earth orbit, competition between multiple private companies looking to provide access to the moon is creating a market for commercial lunar services. Back in 2013, we had a good look at the lunar market, and what we determined was that there was a lot of pent-up demand. 
Since then, a number of announcements from Bigelow Aerospace announcing an inflatable lunar habitat, Jeff Bezos, his Blue Origin company announcing their Blue Moon aspirations to develop a lander for NASA to land on the moon. And just recently, SpaceX, on their roadmap to Mars, has turned and looked to the moon as a stepping stone. I'm really excited to welcome John Thornton to the podcast today. As CEO of Astrobotic, John is one of the most influential leaders in the entrepreneurial space sector. He's planning the world's first commercial mission to the moon in 2019. And while we went to the moon as a one-off in the Apollo era of the 60s and 70s, Astrobotic is taking us back to the moon for good by developing an economically viable transportation service and enabling a sustained human presence. So welcome to the podcast, John. Oh, thanks for having me, Chad. So you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. My name is John Thornton. I'm the CEO of Astrobotic. Uh, our, our business is building a, a lunar logistics. Uh, so our goal as a company is to make the moon accessible to the world. So towards that, we're building a DHL delivery service to take payloads from all over the world bolt them up on our lander and fly them up to the surface. We've got 11 deals so far from six nations for our first mission, and we're excited to kick things off in 2019, which will be the 50th anniversary of Apollo, and a perfect way to transition to the next generation of settlement and exploration on the moon. Awesome. So this obvious question, is there a market? And who is paying you, um, these 11 nations and these customers, and why? It's a great question, and it's one of those questions that uh, if you talk to anyone down the street, walking down the street, and you say, hey, I'm going to build a moon company, um, you might uh, get some crazy looks. So people have a hard time uh, recognizing that, yes, it's one of greatest mankind's uh, feats to have landed on the surface of the moon so many years back, um, and now the idea that you could build a business there seems so far-fetched. But um, when you actually look at the numbers and you look at the customers and you look at the market, it's very much there. Um, it's space agencies and uh, research institutions uh, and commercial organizations looking at early, early prospects for mining um, that make up the majority of the, of the customer base. Uh, we have over 100 payloads in our pipeline today um, from all over the world. Uh, these are space agencies that want to send science and research and exploration items up to the surface, uh, research institutes, similar kind of vein. Um, and then we've got commercial groups that are sending mining precursors. Um, commercial groups that are starting new businesses around our, our, uh, our, our service offering. Um, and all in all, we're, we're seeing a big uh, market shift in the world um, where the Europeans and uh, Asians uh, and, and the whole rest of the world is really recognizing that the moon is the next place um, to go. And what we're seeing here domestically is that uh, the U.S. space policy was reset with the election, and now we're seeing a, a strong shift back towards the moon. And we think that's going to result in a very strong uh, domestic market that we're already seeing the beginnings of. Um, and, and ultimately, it's going to sync up perfectly with the rest of the world. And we're right on the cusp of a, a big market shift to be a, a lot of lunar activities in space. Um, so all in all, that's, that's kind of the shift um, that, that has opened up the opportunity for the moon. So what percentage of your current customers and your pipeline that you mentioned is government versus commercial, let's say? So we're about 50-50 in terms of government and commercial, uh, which is not that different uh, compared to launch industry. Um, so, you know, you look at SpaceX or United Launch Alliance, it, it, it's a mix right down the middle. I mean, just look at our, our uh, payload manifest for Mission 1, and we have mostly commercial on there at the moment. Um, so it's uh, we've got some groups looking for sponsorship and marketing opportunities. Um, uh, we also have some groups looking at exploration uh, on this first mission. We also have groups looking uh, to do some mining precursor uh, uh, kind of developments. Um, space agencies are, are uh, uh, 
maybe a little slower on the uptake on this first mission, but the future missions, they're going to be the, the bulk of it um, for, uh, uh, for missions two, through two, three, four, five. Um, and then in the, the medium term, we're going to see a transition uh, where the moon is going to become more and more interesting for resource mining. So extracting water, extracting the metals, extracting precious resources and turning the moon into a, a gas station or a waypoint in space to go to deeper destinations. Um, so it, it, the market's really going to be changing over time. And it depends on where we're at in the market dynamic to, to who the customers are. That makes a ton of sense. And you're seeing that in space, as we've seen in so many other industries, right? Is that um, uh, before there's a commercial market, a lot of what's being done is funded by the government. The government is a key, well, starts with, as you know, the only customer, then moves into being a key customer and an anchor customer that we're seeing in space now, still a, 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 an integral piece of, of the new market dynamics, but commercial starts to play a larger role, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. The governments take, take a key role in, in the, being the vanguard for de- establishing the possibilities of new markets and then establishing the market itself. So we've saw this in, in launch with the, uh, with the Lunar COTS program that, that NASA did. Uh, they recognized that commercial launch could be achieved for resupply to the International Space Station. And now they're using that same model with a program called Catalyst for the moon. So their goal is to, to, uh, to offer um, commercially, they want to have the capability for U.S. companies to offer payload delivered to the surface of the moon. Uh, and NASA wants a hand in helping shape that technology and make sure that it's a building block that they can build on and use and, and uh, move forward. Um, so the government takes a real key role in fostering that uh, innovation for new markets. This is this is great because we're starting to touch on what really excites me about what's happening right now with your company and with space as a whole, right? So, so all of this innovation um, is and and disruption in existing markets and creating entirely new markets. We're watching all of this, you know, business case studies. We're watching it play out in real time. And so, John, you and I have been um, talking now for a number of years, and uh, it's been really interesting for me to see. You know, uh, in the beginning, it was those astrobotic guys. Yeah, they've got some great technology, but what's the business plan, right? And then you come up with a business plan, and they say, "Well, that's great, you know, that you've got a business plan, but who's going to buy this thing?" And then you somebody pays you, and then another, you know, somebody pays you, and then they say, "Oh, well, that's great that you got some people to pay you." But where's the long term bit? You know, where's the long term market for this thing? And then you see the European Space Agency, the new head of the European Space Agency, come out and talk about the Lunar Village concept. Um, and then you see ULA talking about the uh, United Launch Alliance, uh, large uh, launch provider in the U.S., talking about um, uh, cis lunar space, the space you know between here and the moon, and 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 the lunar economy, and they are getting involved and in putting real money behind this. And then you hear you know Blue Origin and SpaceX and others, and everyone's talking about the moon now, right? And so this long term market is finally starting to open up. But you've been involved since those early days when people would say that's a great new technology, but where's the business plan, right? So so how did Astrobotic come about? And why did you decide to get involved? All great ideas start as a crazy idea uh, and then someday mature and, and blossom into why haven't we been doing that all along? And we're, we're right at that inflection point for, for exactly that transformation. I think you described it very well. Um, it's, it's very, very exciting to see. And it's, it has been a, uh, an interesting experience with investors. If you compare our, our, our financials and our revenues compared to any other startup, 
Um, there's no other startup that can show, well, there's not very many startups that can show the kind of revenues that we have where we're at. And we're a space company flying things to the surface of the moon. And I think it's hard for investors to wrap around that. Um, but it all started 10 years ago. Uh, we, uh, we just celebrated our, our 10th anniversary this, uh, this month in, in August. It started with the Google Lunar X Prize as a, uh, a catalyst to get, to get us going and to get a space race around the moon going. Um, originally, it was just a prize and it was uh, uh, maybe more of a novelty um, uh, to attempt to, to get a, a new business and a new market going. Um, so we got started back then. We, we focused on the prize. And then over time, uh, it took about five years or so for us to um, you know, work out some early company kinks and uh, get, get our technology feed under us. Um, and then to, to really hone in on the business of, of selling payloads uh, to fly to the moon. So in, in the last five years, we've especially uh, uh, grown substantially. We're up to 18 full-time people here in the Strip District of, of Pittsburgh. Uh, and we're uh, off, off and running at this point. So you have significant revenue. I mean, and I think that's going to be a big surprise to people um, that, you know, you're for one that you're launching, you know, that you're a lunar transportation company and you're going to be on the moon in two years and two that you have revenue today. Right. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, without giving specific numbers and things, but, you know, what are we talking about here? Is it uh, thousands of dollars? Is it millions of dollars? What are where what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about millions of dollars that the majority of uh, well, the vast majority of the money that we have collected as a company has been in the form of revenue. Um, so it's uh, that's what we've grown the company on uh, almost entirely revenue. And that's revenue from uh, down payments from customers. Uh, it's revenue from uh, technology contracts and development contracts uh, related to the moon. Uh, it's uh, money from uh, we won some Google X Prize money uh, a little while back. Um, and then we did uh, take some uh, two and a half million dollars in, in investment from this, uh, led by the Space Angels Network a few years back. Um, but the, the vast majority of our growth has been the revenue side. And I think that that is surprising and, and uh, quite cool for us. Um, uh, and, and I think a lot of people might might be taken uh, taken aback by that and surprised. But but the way our business model works is that we take down payments and progress payments from every payload customer that flies with us. So essentially, the customer is helping us finance the mission. And what's remarkable is we haven't done one yet, right? and our customers are so excited about going that they're willing to take the risk with us. Um, they're willing to pay for the alpha version of the, of the product service offering. Um, so we're able to, to fly the first mission with a shared risk uh, and demonstrate the technology that way. Yeah. So the company has been around for 10 years, and you're launching in 2019 in two years. You've got customers that are giving you millions of dollars in prepayments and you haven't been there yet. So how is it that you've convinced all of these customers um, to get on board with with Astrobotic and view you as somebody who can get, you know, get their valuable payload to the moon? That's a great question. And the way we approach this is that it's our partnerships and our uh, people here at the company that are going to make this happen. Um, so first is our partnership with NASA. Uh, we have a, a partnership through a program called Catalyst where we have um, tens of engineers from NASA uh, working on our program at any given time. Um, their goal is to uh, stand up a commercial capability of flying payloads to, to the moon so that they can purchase it and so that the rest of the world can purchase it. Um, so NASA has a, a stake in the technology success uh, right there. The next is our partnership with, uh, with Airbus. Uh, Airbus has a long, long, long history of, of great space flight. 
Um, they're going to be uh, supporting our systems engineering and helping us uh, also with landing legs for, for the program. Um, and then we have our partnership with United Launch Alliance, uh, one of the most reliable launch uh, companies in the world um, that has a long, great history of flying payloads to the, to the surface of the moon. Uh, well, the vicinity of uh, they have a long history of flying pay, uh, payloads to the vicinity of the moon. Um, so if you were going to put together a team to create a business of flying payloads to the moon, you'd get your best space agency in the world. You'd get a, a top aerospace prime that's been in space for, for, for decades. And then you'd get the best launch company in the world. And you'd put a wrapper on that uh, with a young entrepreneurial approach um, that can kind of reset uh, our approach to space. Um, so that's that's the team. That's the sauce. That's how we're going to make this thing happen. And that's how we are very confident that the first mission is going to be success. And it's going to be the first of many successes into the future. That is a beautiful thing. The fact that you're able to convince customers that you've got um, the right technology, the right team. Um, there's a few others out there that are trying to do a similar thing. And um, and. And their customers are deciding to put their money with Astrobotic to get them to the moon. So you just explained why customers are trusting you and your team and your group of partners to take their payloads to the moon. But what is it that has that brought these established partners on board? How did you convince NASA, uh, DHL, Airbus, Defense and Space, United Launch Alliance? I mean, these are all big names. How did you get these guys involved? How did you uh, convince these organizations, you know, that you were the right team to partner with? And what does that mean for you guys uh, going forward? I think there's a, a few key pieces that have attracted these world-class partners. I mean, the, the first is that uh, we are out to build this company brick by brick by showing the technology and demonstrating good work. We've been doing that for 10 years. Um, you look at our track record, we have some of the uh, world's first uh, demonstrations in several areas, including uh, terrestrial uh, visually guided landing, uh, propulsive landing. Um, so we've, we've been at the forefront of uh, technical development. Um, the second is that each of these organizations are seeing a huge opportunity in the lunar market. Uh, and that's motivated them to say, okay, well, who's operating in this space? Who else is out there? Who can we partner with? How can we, how can we actually make our first step and make, make, a, make a big big splash here? Um, and in you know, looking at the landscape, they see us and our competitors, and, and um, uh, we certainly stand out uh, on the page. We're the only ones with the pipeline. We're the only ones with the customers. Um, uh, and it all kinds of, it all kinds of feed, it feeds on itself. It, one thing adds to another, adds to another, adds to another. Um, so it's about building that momentum and, and doing good work and hitting your milestones uh, at each step of the way. Um, so you have to demonstrate to these majors uh, that you can uh, hit milestones and take on tough things and accomplish them. And that's what we've been doing for the last 10 years. So you've recently announced your new launch partner. Um, and I just wanted to, to understand why ULA. So United Launch Alliance has been around in launching space vehicles for a long time. They are they are the proven, most proven, uh, most successful launch provider out there. The uh, the Atlas, which is the launch vehicle that we're going to be flying on, has an impeccable launch record. Uh, we're going to be flying as a as a secondary, a shared space on that launch vehicle. Um, so between their great launch success, high reliability. Um, they also have a great pedigree for, for lunar missions themselves. It, it just kind of made sense um, to, to go with United Launch Alliance. Um, they've also been very helpful in our partnership. 
um, uh, working with our, our suppliers and working with us to, to um, uh, make sure that the lander is uh, uh, accepted into, into the launch vehicle, um, that it all works with the environment and everything else. Um, and, and they're also very keen uh, for a lunar economy, as we've seen with their vision for, for the moon and, and the, um, uh, what the moon could turn into. So we see them not only as a first uh, launch provider, um, but also as a long-term partner in the development of, of the moon. So you are working with ULA as your launch partner. If they're launching you, uh, what part of the mission are you doing? And why is it that the launch company can't just come in and do the entire thing themselves? So what we are is we are essentially like a last leg logistics approach here. So what, what we have is the launch vehicle gets us to space. Uh, we are a secondary vehicle that rides on top of that. Um, once we're in space, the launch vehicle lets go. Um, and we fly the rest of the way out to the moon. So if you want to go to an orbit around Earth, you call up a launch vehicle company. If you want to go to uh, uh, the moon, you have to call us because uh, we're going to uh, get to the moon and we're going to land down on the surface. None of the launch vehicle hardware is designed to land on the surface of the moon. Um, so we are that last leg logistics. Um, so we get the launch to ride to space, the lander to take us to the surface. So this makes a whole lot of sense then why DHL is involved, because isn't it there? Um, isn't that what DHL does is get your package or whatever you're sending to like the far reaches of the earth? That's right. I mean, it, it starts at our customer's door when they uh, hand their payload over to DHL. Um, so even even road traffic, um, how do you transport it to the launch site uh, can be an important factor. Um, so you got to track all your loads and make sure you don't break it on the way. And that's what DHL can help a lot with. Um, and then you've got to survive launch, you've got to survive space, and you've got to survive a landing, which is uh, uh, even even larger launch loads. Um, so DHL is, has been in the business of logistics for a long time, and they, they know how to do this business very well. Let's say that I'm uh, a customer, right? So I, I have uh, a rover or something, and I work with you, and then we get to the surface, and then you deploy, you know, uh, my rover on the lunar surface. Then what? Um, are there other services that you guys provide? Um, am I on my own from that point? You sort of drop me off and, and it's up to me or how does that all work? Yeah. So once you land on the surface of the moon with us, it depends on what kind of payload you are in terms of what the next steps are. Um, but on the surface, we offer communications and we offer power for payloads that come with us. So we become the local infrastructure. Um, so payloads that want to drive, so maybe a rover, um, they will drop off the lander and drive away. And then they'll use our Wi-Fi connection, um, literally Wi-Fi, uh, to send their signal to the lander, which will then send that signal back home. Uh, if you're a, a, a payload that wants to stay connected, maybe you're a telescope or something that's looking down at the, at the soil, um, you can use the power from the lander to, to operate your, your, your system. Um, so it really depends on what kind of payload you are, what, what the needs are. Um, but, but essentially, we are a uh, one-stop logistics and infrastructure support for anything moon. Wi-Fi on the moon. So is that your next partner, uh, Verizon, or what do you have in Pittsburgh? It should be the next partner. Um, whoever's going to be the uh, communications connection from the moon is going to have a, a very big presence on this mission. Um, everything coming back from the moon in this mission will be phenomenal. It will be the kind of imagery that has never been seen before. And the experience, uh, it will be something really original and uh, amazing for folks. So anything that any company that's uh, associated with that video or streaming could, uh, could be very well positioned for um, being a part of a big piece of history. It's something that millions and millions of people will be watching. 
On the technical piece, I'm curious in terms of your progress, right? Can you talk about your last big technical milestone, one that you are proud of and what's next? So what's the next big technical milestone that, that you're looking forward to? One of our, our recent uh, technical milestones was flying a propulsive vehicle uh, and landing it for the very first time autonomously using just vision uh, system. So this is the first free-flying propulsive lander ever. Uh, we beat uh, JPL to it. They, they did it a few months after us. Um, so what this is, is we took a, a propulsive vehicle that existed already, and we put our controls and software uh, in charge of the sticks. So we told it where to fly and, and where to land. Um, so we said, okay, here, here's our, our landing sites. We're gonna um, pepper an area with rocks, and we're gonna leave an area open, and we're gonna pepper another area with rocks. We said, okay, lander, figure out where the safest spot is and land. Um, and it landed right on the clear spot uh, each time. So that was a, a huge success for us. Um, so we're gonna be refining that, uh, miniaturizing that and preparing it for our, our, our mission. Um, our, our upcoming big milestone is our preliminary design review coming up in mid-September. Um, that is a, a major, major milestone in a, in a space development program. This is where you have fully defined every subsystem, every component of the spacecraft and you go through it uh, with a fine tooth comb with all of your major partners. So we're gonna have uh, uh, more than 30 NASA folks involved at, at various stages. We're gonna have uh, folks from Airbus, uh, folks from United Launch Alliance and others uh, combing over our system, making sure that we've found all the uh, errors or, or mistakes or anything else, make sure all of that's out and we've got a clean system uh, heading into our, our, our next step. So obviously, you know, this purpose of this podcast is to help investors understand uh, the risks and opportunities and identify some good deals. So what does it look like for an angel investor looking to get a return from Astrobotic? Well, the first thing I would say right out of the gate there is that whoever is investing in this next round for Astrobotic is looking at about a 36x return. Um, and that, that's based on projections from just sales of our payload pipeline right now. Um, it's uh, Exit opportunities are... Um, first is that you could have a sale to a, a major company. Um, we are seeing uh, Blue Origin and SpaceX and other uh, aerospace large uh, majors um, increasingly focused on the moon. Um, that is great for the market. It's also great for the possibilities of, of uh, M&A activity uh, for us uh, out of the future. So we're very, very excited to see that. Um, the other is that uh, our margins are very high um, uh, for, for our, our missions. Um, so each mission makes a fair amount of money for the company. So we could potentially even just do returns in dividends um, and then owning a long-term stake in, uh, in the future of humanity. What are the timeframes on those look like? I mean, at what point do you think that Astrobotic would be an attractive acquisition target to these large companies? Or at what point do you think uh, you'd be in a position to start returning capital in the form of dividends? We believe that we become interesting as an acquisition as early as after the first mission to the surface of the moon. Uh, it is such a unique um, capability that no one else in the world other than uh, China has done in the last few years. Um, it, it would put a leg up on any, any aerospace prime looking for a major moon-related contract. Um, so it'd, it'd be an easy call at that point. Uh, so anytime after mission one, I think that possibility is there. I think the odds increase if you can do it twice in a row. Um, in terms of dividends or uh, and, and maybe the outlying years, um, we would want to make sure that we'd have strong cash reserves before we started doing those kinds of dividends. So that might be mission three, mission uh, four or five. 
That's about uh, uh, six years, uh, six to ten years out um, for the dividend side. Um, acquisition, we could see uh, two, three years um, uh, shortly after the first moon landing. For anyone paying attention, there is a lot of focus on the moon right now. Uh, with whether it's you know big names, Bigelow is talking about building a lunar habitat. The European Space Agency, as we talked about, with uh, their lunar village concept. Uh, the lunar stuff that ULA is working on. Most recently, uh, Blue Origin has come out. Um, we've heard news of them talking about a Blue Moon mission with NASA. Um, SpaceX is reevaluating their Mars plans, how they're going to get to Mars, and they're now considering using the, the moon, it sounds like, as a stepping stone, um, which a lot of other people have been saying for a while. How does Astrobotic fit in within that landscape? Um, and how does your product offering, your service offering, compare to these other players? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And I think there's an important distinction to be drawn there. Is SpaceX and Blue Origin are, are building very large-scale payload delivery capacities for, for the moon. Uh, Blue, Blue Origin, with their Blue Moon program, has been much more vocal. Um, they're, they're on order of tens of thousands, um, uh, well, about 10,000 pounds. So it's much, much, much larger. Um, we're, we're talking uh, hundreds of pounds uh, for our capacities. So there's, ba- there's room for two different scales. It's just like the launch vehicle industry. You've got the super heavy lift, uh, and then you've got the, uh, the smaller uh, vehicles, which tends to, at the moment, have, have the big momentum in, in the market. Um, so we're really focused on that smaller scale, um, numerous customers on a single uh, lander that's you know, coalesced on it. Um, and we've, uh, that, that's really the big, big difference between us and, and Blue and, and SpaceX. The good news is that with Blue Origin and SpaceX in, in the mix now, it's a great signal that the major players are out to make money on the moon. And, and they want to stake their plot on that corner lot. That's exactly. Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely a strong market signal to see these big names and these, you know, these big players um, getting in uh, to to this market that we've been saying, you know, for years is um, uh, is a big opportunity. And so uh, curious, uh, you know, you're tens of thousands, 10,000 pounds uh, of payload with Blue Origin, hundreds of pounds with Astrobotic. What types of things are they taking? What types of things are you taking? So our approach is to take uh, at, at several pounds uh, at a time. We're going to take science instruments, exploration instruments, uh, rovers, uh, uh, some marketing experiences, and even even small companies that are building um, everything from virtual reality experiences uh, to uh, people that are burying human ashes on the surface, I and mean, all, all things in between there. Um, the, the blue and the SpaceX approach uh, they, what they require is a, a much greater change in, the, uh, in space policy in general. Um, their approach is betting on uh, European Space Agency or NASA or any one of those uh, making a big policy bet on the moon. Uh, our approach does not require that. We, there is a market out there today for what we have, um, and we don't need to have any one of these agencies make a big change. Of course, it's great if they do. Um, and we will be right in the mix if they do, but it doesn't require that. Um, our, our pipeline as it stands today, um, with over 100 payloads in that pipeline, we're worth over $1.5 billion. All right. So when you and I first started talking and I started getting really, you know, on, on board with um, what you guys were doing, uh, you and I had a conversation and it was um, when you go outside at night 
And, you know, when you're talking about the moon all day and, you know, you can feel how close it is. And then you, you go outside at night and you look up and you see the moon. All of a sudden it feels like it's a whole lot closer. You know, I mean, it doesn't look like this distant thing. It's like, you know, we're going there in two years. Um, and that's a really cool feeling. So um, and I'm just on the periphery, right? Um, you live and breathe this thing every day. So I'm really interested to hear um, where you think we're going. So in five, 10 years from now, what does the moon look like? Uh, what are we doing with it? What types of commercial activities are, are happening there? Uh, who's the players? You know, what, what's your vision for the moon in the next 10 years? Our goal as a company is to make the moon accessible to the world. So the next 10 years is about making that possible. We, we want people all over the world uh, to have that same feeling when they look up at the moon. Uh, we want them to, to feel that it's closer and feel that it's a part of uh, humanity and a part of what we're doing here as, as a species. Um, and, and that's what it can be. And that, that's what we see in the future. Um, it, it will be uh, a destination that we will learn to live off the land. So it's the closest celestial body to Earth. We're going to learn to grow food there. We're going to learn to uh, turn the turn the, the dirt into 3D printed material that we can create things with. We're going to learn to manufacture things in uh, microgravity that could be uh, extremely beneficial to potentially send back here to Earth. Um, we're going to learn how to uh, 3D print our habitats and homes. Um, and we're going to uh, use all that capability to uh, learn to live off the land on the moon to then learn to live off the land on Mars and further and further uh, into the solar system, maybe even outside of our solar system. Uh, and it all starts with the moon. Some big drivers that are going to power that, that we're going to see the beginnings of in the next 10 years, is uh, the, the first uh, big economies in resources. Uh, we think that first driving resource is going to be water. And it's going to be a, a major commodity like oil is here on Earth. And it's going to power uh, space transportation and development. If you have water, you can split it and you have oxygen so you can breathe it. Uh, if you split it, you have oxygen and hydrogen. And if you, uh, uh, you can uh, condense it down to liquid form and use it for rocket fuel. Um, so water in space is incredibly valuable. Uh, and it's, it's very valuable on the moon because uh, if you work out the physics, it's very expensive to fly things from Earth um, up to space. But harvest it from the moon, it's very cheap uh, to get that same material up into space. Um, so the, the economics work out. And th there is water on the moon, right? I mean, um, I don't know if you were paying attention to the news. It was, what, a month or two ago? I mean, we knew that there was some water on the moon, but now we've found a whole lot more of it. That's right. Yeah, the, the water on the moon has been an interesting story. When, when the Apollo astronauts landed, uh, they, they reported that there was no water on the moon, that it was dry as, as a bone. Um, but it's kind of like landing in the Sahara uh, here on Earth and declaring that the entire Earth uh, is dry. Um, what, what they found out through a series of missions and impactors and experiments is if you go to the poles of the moon, there are vast, vast quantities of water. Um, some people think that there's great lakes worth of water uh, at the poles of the moon. And, and what naturally occurs there is there's permanently shadowed craters. Um, and that's important because they create cold traps. So they're ultra, ultra, ultra cold in a vacuum. So when you have an icy comet that hits the, the moon, uh, that ice is captured in that cold, uh, cold trap. And over billions of years, that adds up to a lot of water uh, stored in the form of ice crystals at, at the poles of the moon. Um, so if we can get there and we can harvest it, it could be incredibly valuable uh, for space exploration, transportation, and even in-orbit transportation and station keeping for, for uh, satellites. So 10 years, um, 
is a decent amount of time, right? And and a lot has changed. I mean, got even the last five to eight years in space, I mean, it's almost unrecognizable, right? So um, considering the dynamic environment that we're in, 10 years is actually quite a long time. So what have you learned over those 10 years and how has your trajectory, your company's trajectory, how has it changed? Um, for instance, um, uh, the X Prize, um, your involvement in it, your graduation from it, um, your decision to go from the Griffin lander that you originally envisioned to the Peregrine lander today. Um, these are the ones that I'm remembering off the top of my head. So, you know, what has happened, um, from your perspective over the last 10 years? Yeah, a lot, a lot has happened over the last 10 years. I mean, the biggest is that the market trends are shaping up beautifully on, on, on the whole. I mean, 10 years ago, we were too early to be the, to be the business that we are now. Um, we are seeing is a, is a huge trend in space towards small spacecraft and small payloads. Um, that was the big primary driver between uh, uh, scaling down our Griffin class lander, which is um, on order of uh, about a thousand pounds uh, to, the, to the surface of the moon, um, down to a Peregrine class, which is on order of about 500 pounds to the surface of the moon. Um, that, that smaller scale uh, makes it uh, easier to close a mission with numbers of smaller payloads. Um, while still keeping the margins up high. Um, and it also makes it easier to get our first mission off the ground. Um, it, it flies as a secondary um, rather than a primary, uh, meaning that we share a ride to space rather than taking the entire launch vehicle. And that kind of opens up a lot more flexibility and a lot more launch opportunities and a lot for, uh, for flight to space. Um, and then with the XPRIZE, we, we started our company uh, chasing the XPRIZE. That was the whole point in the very beginning. Um, and then over time, we realized that the XPRIZE is, is, uh, is not the end. It's not the end game at all. It's, it's a stepping stone if we could win it. And if it didn't line up, fine. The, the bigger win is the, is the business. Uh, and that's ultimately what we realized uh, at the end of uh, 2016 was we said, okay, well, the XPRIZE is expiring in 2017. You know, we're on track for 2019. We've got uh, customers and everything else lined up for it. Um, let's let's separate. Let's focus on the business. It's, it's time to uh, step up and make make a real business out of this. Um, so in, in the last year, we hired uh, about 90 years plus of space experience across several different hires. Um, our, our mission director now is a 25 year Lockheed Martin veteran. Um, you know, has put 30 plus things up into space. Uh, our systems engineer is another 25 year space industry veteran. He's uh, he's been a significant part of 13 space missions to all various destinations, uh, including the moon. Um, so we've really uh, stepped. We're we're ready to uh, address and go on the market as we see it. So our audience includes a lot of would-be CEOs and space entrepreneurs as well. So as now a seasoned aerospace exec, what advice would you give based on your 10 years of wisdom? Space is hard and you have to love it. Uh, and that's just so important because it's hard enough to start a business. It's, it's extra hard to start one in space. Um, so you have to be passionate about what you do. You have to have that passion to get you through the low spots because they will come. Uh, and they'll, they'll come in, in more ways than one because it's technically difficult and uh, you know, challenging to build, build a business in this. Um, so it's really, you, you got to have the passion. You've got to have the, the steadfast approach to just, you know, Take it day by day and uh, build each day. Um, so that that's really the the core uh, to making it in in the space industry. This is all very exciting stuff. And so, how can people follow your progress? 
Um, and how can they watch the launch and the landing in 2019 and how can they follow along? Yeah, so you can follow us on our on our website, astrobotic.com, and we have uh, regular news releases there. You can go on Facebook and get the uh, more daily uh, or, or weekly updates on what's going on. Um, we just un- unveiled today that we've got a, a new mission video uh, with, uh, with United Launch Alliance flying uh, with us on, on board. And it's quite cool video, so I uh, have people check that out. Um, so just follow us, check us out on Facebook um, and, and on our website and track the updates as, as we go. It's going to get pretty exciting with the lead up to 2019. Um, and there, uh, the launch and the landing and the whole thing, um, you will see us in the press, you will see us in, in the news, you will see us uh, streaming. Um, there will be all kinds of ways to interact with the mission. Uh, and, and what an exciting one it's going to be. So the mission will be streamed. It, it will be streamed, it will be broadcast, it'll be on all kinds of, of different channels. We, we just um, made a deal, one of our, our uh, payload deals with the Atlas uh, Space Operations, and they're going to be providing a laser communication link uh, between us and Earth. Um, so what that is, is a, it's about a thousand times faster than what we were previously planning uh, for communications. So it enables uh, a thousand gigabits per second, which is... Um, or sorry, a thousand megabits per second, a one gigabit per second connection. Um, what that allows us to do is uh, streaming HD video and, and uh, uh, pictures and uh, potentially even a virtual reality experience from the moon. Um, so we, we will definitely be taking advantage of that. Um, and, and it will be exciting to see all the products that come out of it. So we always say at the end of all of our blog posts that there has never been a better time uh, for an angel investor to invest in early stage space companies. So John, my question to you is, is that true? And if so, why? It is true. And, and there's a few big things that are, are making that true. First is that we're at the very beginning of a huge sea change in space. And it's early enough right now that not every one of the major institutional investors and major big players has recognized it yet. But it's developed enough where there's real opportunity with real near-term returns. Um, so this is a, a perfect sweet spot for angel investors um, to grab a hold of a, a huge markets that are going to be popping up. Um, everything from Earth orbit and observation all the way out to uh, the moon. Um, there's huge opportunities there. So it, it really is the right time for uh, angel investors to get into space. So... If you were going to write a, a value proposition for the entrepreneurial space industry as a whole, uh, what would that be? I think the first is that there are very real returns in space, um, very real market opportunities. And, and that is a really important one because a lot of people are, are new to space. They don't, uh, they're not familiar with it. They still think of space as something that Apollo and NASA is all about, um, which is a very dated uh, that's decades old uh, thinking about space. Um, so that, that's the first is that there are places to make real money. Um, and then the next, I mean, if you're investing in, in space, you're investing in the future of humanity. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that um, lightly, that that is absolutely true. It, it is, um, space is our future. It's where we're gonna uh, learn to live off the land of other planets. It's how we're going to become a multi-planet species. It's how we're gonna maybe find a life in this, uh, uh, in, in the universe. Um, so it really is, you know, pushing humanity outward, discovering the unknown and finding out what could be there and how we can use that back, back here on earth. And the fact that there are businesses built around that, that you can actually make money 
um, investing in, in companies that are building those stepping stones is phenomenal. So, John, this has been fascinating. The moon is a whole lot closer than you think. Companies making money today and people living and working on the moon and using it as a stepstone for deeper space missions, following it all in ultra HD streaming from the moon. I mean, this is all really good stuff. Thanks very much for joining us today, John. Appreciate it. A sure thing. Thanks for having me, Chad. Thanks for tuning in to our inaugural episode. I am certain that after that interview with John, you're going to want to learn more about becoming an investor in early stage space ventures. So I want to invite you to visit our website, spaceangels.com, where you can learn all about Space Angels membership and how you can get involved in this exciting new sector. And before I sign off, I just want to put in a plug for our next episode. Make sure you tune in. We've uh, got Jeff Manber, CEO of NanoRacks, on the show. He is one of the most influential leaders in the entrepreneurial space race. And he's going to be speaking to us about commercial space stations, uh, replacing the International Space Station, and all the exciting things that they've been doing with their company. These guys are literally shaping our future in space. You're not going to want to miss this episode.